Turning your Bibles, please, to John chapter 2. Before we get to John chapter 2, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered today to worship you, and we are grateful for the songs we've been able to sing, and the words of those songs, the, the writers to those songs that were so biblical, reminded us of the hope we have that your glorious Son will return and rescue us. We're just grateful to be here, grateful to be in your presence. And so we ask for your help, that you'd help us to gird up our loins, to pay attention to the word as a continuing act of worship, that you'd enable us to have good attention span so that we could focus on your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. So today our subject and the title of the sermon is The Zeal of Christ. And as an introduction, I'd like to begin by considering the zeal of the prophet Nehemiah as an Old Testament example. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to summarize this for you so we can speed through it a bit. But from Nehemiah 13, we gather that in the days of Nehemiah, there was a self-serving priest named Eliashib, and he had done an evil thing in the temple by providing his friend Tobiah lodging inside the very courts of the house of God. Eliashib essentially told his buddy that it's okay to take up residence in the temple, as if the temple were Eliashib's possession to rent out. Now, when Nehemiah learned about this evil thing, he was greatly displeased, and he threw Tobiah's household goods out of the temple area. He gave orders to purify the rooms and set everything back in order. Nehemiah also learned, upon further examination, that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, so all the Levites had, uh, and, and all the singers responsible for the temple worship had been forced to abandon their posts. Their wages had been withheld. So he rebuked the officials, and he said, Why is the house of God neglected? Then he called the Levites together, and he restored them to their posts. Nehemiah also saw men bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So he rebuked the nobles of Judah, and he said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? So he ordered the doors be shut until the Sabbath was over, and he stationed guards at the gates so that no load would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now once or twice these merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem hoping to get back in and make some more money. But Nehemiah warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. He threatened to beat them. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. His zeal drove them away. Nehemiah also saw that the men of Judah had married foreign women, allowing their false worship to come into Jerusalem with them, the very thing the Lord had commanded them not to do. So he rebuked them, and he called curses down on them. He physically beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. He grabbed them by the head of hair and put knuckles to them. He said, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, the great king of Israel, sinned against God? Even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying unbelievers? So in his zeal for the glory of God, Nehemiah purified the temple. He purified the priests and the Levites. He purified the people of everything foreign and unholy. It's a picture of extreme zeal. 
Now, while some more sensitive Christians might have trouble justifying Nehemiah's methodology in the employment of physical force to enforce obedience to the right worship of God, now other Christians would applaud Nehemiah's commitment to action as being appropriately applied as a necessary rebuke, given the gravity of the situation. In either case, no one could rightly question Nehemiah's zealous heart for the glory of God. Nehemiah's zeal was only a preview an Old Testament picture that prefigured and anticipates the one to come whose zeal for the glory of God would eclipse all others. Which brings us to our consideration today, the zeal of Christ. And we'll see a picture of that in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Jesus, of course, as an obedient Jew and the perfect law keeper, would have attended Passover most years of his life. And when you think of all the rich significance and symbolism of the Passover, the Passover itself typifies and and depicts the work of Christ on the cross, the sacrificial lamb. The Passover is about Jesus, and yet as an obedient Jew, he's attending every year. But what makes this Passover particularly significant is that there's a chronological demarcation clearly marking this as the first Passover of his public ministry as Messiah. It's a very significant Passover. If you think of the overall context, this is after Jesus has prepared for his public ministry by being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's then been tested by the temptations in the wilderness. And now here for the first time, he's purposely beginning his public ministry And he's going to declare himself to be the Messiah. His hour had come. And so he arrives at the temple on a mission, along with as many as two million Jewish pilgrims from the entire region, crowding into Jerusalem for the Passover. This was the largest event on the Jewish calendar. And lines and lines of people could have been seen streaming into the city over every road that came into the city for days and days in advance to fill the city with with a couple of million worshipers. So the city is buzzing with activity. It's just packed with people. And in the midst of all the crowds and all the excitement, what is it that captures Jesus' attention here? Let's read again in verse 14. Jesus finds in the temple those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. So when Jesus enters the temple courts, does he see what Solomon saw in 1 Kings 8? If you remember at the dedication of the original temple, when the temple was so filled with the glory of God like smoke that the priests couldn't even enter the temple. No, that's not at all what Jesus sees here, is it? It's a far cry from that. What Jesus sees has really devolved into a religious circus. They turned the courts of God's temple into a stockyard for animals with the constant bleeding of the sheep and the groans of the oxen. All the noises and all the smells, if you can imagine, of the animal trade, coupled with the shouting of men bartering and haggling over the noise of the crowd. It would have been like combining a cattle auction with the trading room floor of a stock exchange. People trying to make deals and yelling over all the noise. Just a massive amount of chaotic confusion in the temple courts of God. And all that noise could not have been conducive to reverent worship, could it? Can you imagine how distracting it would be here today if a stampede of animals were herded into this sanctuary? Do you think you could concentrate? 
But was it wrong for these animal traders to be making a legitimate income? I mean, they're trying to make an honest living and earn a reasonable profit. Is that so wrong? I mean, these things were, after all, necessary for temple sacrifices. According to the laws and regulations in Leviticus, the people needed these sacrifices. So wasn't this commerce actually providing a service for the worshipers coming into town? In the former days, the animal trade was carried out across the Kedron Valley, on the other side of the valley. But now they had shifted it right into the outer court of the temple. They're selling animals inside the temple of God. This was supposed to be a place consecrated for prayer and worship, not a place of clamor and commerce. And we know God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of order and peace. And yet these merchants are justifying what they're doing without any shame. They're claiming to be providing a service for those needing to buy the offerings by locating themselves there inside the temple. But hey, what could be more convenient for the consumer, right? Maybe they thought they were being seeker-sensitive or culturally relevant. They're offering the people what they need, right where they needed it, right where they wanted it, right? But the temple was to be a place of communion with the holy God of heaven. Nothing could have been more inappropriate, so they failed to recognize just how serious a thing it is to pervert the worship of God. Maybe they forgot the Old Testament. When people offered strange fire before the Lord, they perished immediately before the Lord. They took this so lightly. They justified it by claiming that they had religious permission to do it. And in fact, they did. They had the endorsement of the high priest, Annas. In those days, Annas, he was the the authority behind everything. They called the temple the bazaars of Annas. It's how bad it had become. The high priest had opportunistically sold franchise rights to the booths of the money changers and the animal dealers by allowing them into the temple. And he got a piece of all the action. He got a percentage off every transaction, profiting off his position as high priest, high priest emeritus. So try to picture the scene that Jesus sees here, how different it would have been from Solomon in 1 Kings 8. There's countless travelers who've come from all over the country and the outlying regions, and they, and they come way too far away, really, to transport their animals very easily, so they expect to buy things when they get there. And so there the merchants are, all lined up, ready to sell their wares, you know, rubbing their greedy hands together. Can't wait. This is the biggest profit time of the year. It's like Christmas for the retailer. Our profits are going to go through the roof at this point, right? And they've got animal inspectors there. These are people who trained for at least 18 months just to become enough of an official to give this certification that these animals were blemish-free. And why did they do that? For their own profit. They could direct people to buy from their recommended official animal dealers. Hey, don't bring your animals in here. They might not pass our inspections. Buy from our friend over here. You think they didn't get a piece of that action? You can almost hear their, their marketing slogans as they come in hawking their wares and their services. And of course, the animal sellers, they're overpricing everything they sold. It's like highway robbery. They've got you over a barrel. And then there are collectors of the temple taxes. These weren't Roman tax collectors. These were religious tax collectors ready to collect the offerings. But before you could make the offering, you had to go to the money changers because you had to convert all your currency into Jewish coinage so it would be acceptable to drop that in the offering basket. So what did they do? They charged a 12.5% commission to exchange your money from one form to the other. 
And these poor worshipers that, that were agrarian and worked hard and scraped together enough to bring an offering would come and see a whole day's wage evaporate just to change the coins. You wonder how the faithful worshiper would have felt exploited by these religious opportunists who took advantage of their monopoly. They would have been discouraged right at the gate. They're trying to go in and worship God in the temple, and before they can even get in, they've got to run this gauntlet of rip-off artists, essentially, price gougers. They're just trying to fulfill their obligations to God in the temple. Their exploitation rose to the level of extortion because nearly everybody had to buy something from one of these guys. Imagine that would have definitely disheartened the worshiper. Can you imagine coming to a church today and say, well, before you can come in, you better drop some money in the plate. Here's a basket. No jingle, no enter. Can you imagine how bizarre that would be? Someone blocking your entrance to the house of God and demanding money before you can come in. It's essentially what was going on. But as for the temple itself, it had been written that God's house shall be called a house of prayer. Jeremiah prophesies, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. What was happening in the temple essentially amounted to authorized greed in the name of service to God. Greed in the name of God. They thought they could serve two masters, I suppose. Maybe they convinced themselves they could serve both God and money. But we know that's not true. But the ministry can be quite profitable, even today, right? You think about all the false teachers flying around the world in private jets, promoting themselves and saying, send us a seed gift. If you first bless us, then you'll be blessed. All that hokum that you see on TV. And what about the lazy so-called ministers who do very little work to teach the whole counsel of God? Instead, opting for easy platitudes and feel-good sermonettes, trafficking in pleasant half-truths, opting for that easy paycheck instead of doing the hard work of the gospel. And all the while, they pat themselves on the back for their well-received pseudo-sermons, for their congregations filled with pseudo-Christians. The ministry can be quite profitable. If you're willing to compromise, you can be wealthy. Of all the crimes committed on the earth, those committed in the name of God are the worst. To misrepresent God is tantamount to blasphemy, isn't it? Jesus, being as perceptive as he is, he sees through all this irreverent profiteering in the name of God in this sacred place that's supposed to be an earthly depiction of heavenly realities. He knows this is the one place on earth designated to represent the presence of God before his arrival. So how does Jesus react to all this hypocrisy? Does he react the way that we probably would have reacted? He certainly isn't about to compromise or pretend that he's at peace with his enemies here. He doesn't request to schedule a committee meeting in the hopes of listing his grievances on some conflict resolution agenda. He's not scheming about how to get his his way. He doesn't take a public opinion poll to test his next move. He's not worried about the popularity. He doesn't take a public opinion poll, does he? He doesn't even consult his disciples. His heart is aflame for the glory of God, and what he sees so grieves him that he knows exactly what has to be done, and he reacts with an instantaneous, holy instinct. No prayer meeting required. 
Now, there were times, of course, when Jesus exhibited great patience with people, but, but patience is not what's required in this case. Quite the contrary, Jesus is so incensed by what he sees and his heart is so filled with a holy jealousy for the glory of God as he sees the temple of his father being reduced to some sort of Palestinian Wall Street. It's just riddled with greed and exploitation and religious corruption and his heart is bursting over the magnitude of that injustice. It's not how it ought to be. So what does he do with all this holy jealousy? Does he restrain his emotion to avoid making a scene? Does he contain his reaction for the sake of preventing a confrontation? I mean, doesn't Jesus realize that at the beginning point of his public ministry, he could probably benefit from some early popularity? He's a new public figure on the scene. Wouldn't it be in his best interest to win over the positive support of the people? Doesn't he realize people prefer a leader who excels in tolerance and compromise? Now, Jesus is not concerned with any such nonsense. His zeal for the glory of God compels him to immediately insist on a different priority for the temple. So he steps into instant action because the house of God is not for the acquisition of personal gain. It's exclusively for the worship of the true and living God. So he acts really according to what the situation requires. Look in verse 16. He makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out of the temple. Along with the sheep and oxen, you think about this, he's driving the people out along with the sheep and the oxen. All the distractions are being driven out in a very timely way. He's enraged with righteous indignation to the point where he has taken action without any hesitation. He's pouring out the coins of the money changers and he's overturning their tables and all with a whip in his hand. He's presumably shouting at them at the top of his lungs. He's flipping their tables over. He's scattering their money all over the ground and lashing with this whip. And there really can be no doubt in anyone's mind that he is deadly serious about it. That's his reaction to the situation at hand. He doesn't take notes and see, what can I do about this later? Who do I go talk to about this? He takes matters into his own hands and he takes action. And this really is giving us an inescapable demonstration of the zeal of Jesus' heart for the righteousness of God. It gives us a great window of insight into who the Lord Jesus really is by what motivates his actions. Now, we know this about Jesus. He says that, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we know it's true that little children came to Jesus. They ran to him. They sat on his knee. He was so approachable, and he was meek and mild. Yet, there's more to Jesus than only those few descriptions, those universally appealing descriptions, isn't there? What we're seeing here is a whole other side of Jesus. Now, many professing Christians prefer to take just those few descriptions of Jesus, and they produce an imbalanced and distorted picture of who Jesus really is. They preach and follow an inaccurate image of a fictional half-Jesus who has little resemblance to the total Christ of the New Testament. We have to take the whole picture. Those who just present part of what the Scripture shows us of Jesus... What they preach amounts to little more than a man stripped of his biblical masculinity. A passive man whose sole purpose is just to automatically forgive everything and just let everyone off the hook with a wink for their sins. That's the Jesus people prefer to believe in. This mythical modern Jesus, they love to imagine that in their own minds. Trafficking in selective partial truths, they willfully ignore the real Christ of Scripture. 
And instead, by opting to believe in an idolatrous distortion of the God-man, they twist him into nothing more than this man-made image. That fictional Jesus cannot save a soul. It's not the whole Jesus. But for those of us who bow our hearts and humble our minds to the entirety of Scripture in order to arrive at a balanced understanding of who the total Jesus really is, we're responsible to see him in the full variety of displays that the Scripture presents him in. So even in this passage, we're really only seeing one snapshot of who Jesus is. This isn't the total Jesus, but this is a very critical, vital snapshot. It's only one part of everything we need to see and take in. But this Jesus is not that milquetoast kind of Jesus that is popularly referred to as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is it? Jesus seems a lot less like a lamb in this instance and a lot more like the lion from the tribe of Judah. These circumstances are riveting even to hear about or read about. But imagine seeing them firsthand in the temple. How alarmed would you be if someone acted that way in purging the man-centeredness out of a church sanctuary today? Can you imagine one of these fluffernutter churches doing their programs of entertainment and someone coming in and putting a stop to it? That would be quite alarming. Many really want to mitigate the shocking nature of this situation in this passage, and they'll say, well, you know, the whip Jesus made, he really only needed that as a visual aid to kind of hush the animals along because they were used to seeing whips. But, you know, he wouldn't have actually used the whip. This is what they say, uh, you know, especially to threaten people. They say, no, the, the Jesus I know, he would never do that. But can you imagine one solitary man in this gigantic, overcrowded marketplace trying to gently coerce some animals out? There's a whole crowd of stubborn and transigent merchants. Do you think they're going to be moved away from their profit centers by this quiet hushing along of some animals? Do you think that would have been effective? If that's all he did, nobody would have moved, and he never would have cleared the temple. So we know that's not what he did. There's no way these profiteering vultures would have budged from their greedy perches unless they were forcibly removed. These radical circumstances of this moment warranted the radical action that Jesus took. He has to become more dangerous than a bodybuilder on steroids here. He's a serious force to be reckoned with. His zeal is not going to be quenched. He's a frightening man who's not afraid to frighten men. There's nothing about his actions that appear meek and gentle in this particular moment. His whip was no empty threat. If you didn't move away from that whip, you would have been hit. And I'm promising you, the whip was making contact with those animals, or they wouldn't have moved. He wasn't playing games. He knew what had to be done, and he was going to do it. Imagine yourself, okay, being in Jesus' position there and knowing in your heart what needed to be done, the purging of this temple, and you're grieved in your heart. Imagine the holy boldness it would have required to actually act on that impulse. To force this entire crowd to vacate the premises and you're the only one standing against them. And you just start throwing tables over and spilling money on the ground and staring them in the eyes and yelling at them. Stop making my father's house a place of business. He shouted louder than all the chaotic noise of the crowd. He probably seemed to people to be a madman. We know he's a righteous man, but he appears to be an enraged madman. 
Everything that's being crashed down and people scrambling to grab their coins as they're rolling around. People are dazed and confused. Men and animals are herded out of the temple courts by this one singular, irrepressible individual who's on a mission from God for God's glory. But yet Jesus, as enraged as he seems, is in full control of the ferocity of his righteous indignation. To the crowd, he may appear to be a lunatic, but in reality, he's the only sane man in that room. He's the only one with enough spiritual sense to perceive the offensiveness of what's happening in this place. He's the only one who esteems the glory of God above all else. And he's truly outraged in his righteous indignation. Yet remaining fully composed and in control of his faculties, he continues in verse 16, shouting to those who are selling the doves, Take these things away! Stop making my father's house a place of business. He's essentially saying, Get these animals out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a stinking cattle auction! He's got their attention. You know that Jesus knew what he spoke of when he called the temple a house of prayer, a house of worship. You think about his human sinlessness and his personal devotion to God and his private prayer life. This is the only holy human being that's ever lived. And imagine his devotion toward God. And even more profound than Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 was Jesus' firsthand knowledge of the glory of God. When he lived with God in heaven, before he came to the earth, he had seen the most splendid creatures of God, angels in perfect holiness, bowing down before the ineffable magnificence of God in all his glory in heaven, and they're shouting, holy, 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 as they exalt the majesty of God. He's seen that firsthand. Far greater magnitude than Isaiah's vision. He knew what he spoke of when he referred to his father's house as a house of worship. The possessive pronoun there is very significant. He calls it my father's house. Stop turning my father's house into a place of business. What a contrast between what Jesus has seen in heaven and what he sees here now in this temple. As these sinful, disrespectful creatures make a mockery of God's worship with their inestimably irreverent use of God's temple. How could these wretched and unworthy men continue to get away with such unspeakably blasphemous acts? Not in the presence of God's Holy Son, they won't. Jesus can't and won't tolerate that. Jesus' unstoppable and stinging rebuke is more than just a slap on the wrist to these self-serving people. His confrontation brings to light what should have been obvious to all that they had perverted the worship of God with their blatant greed. And so Jesus has unhesitatingly and literally physically putting a stop to it so that his actions ensure that this evil will not stand. And right then in that shocking scene in verse 17, his disciples remembered what was written of Jesus when it was said, Zeal for your house will consume me. Even in that very moment, they were enabled to recognize this incident as a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Can you imagine seeing the Messiah and and watching his actions and seeing the scripture come to your mind like a closed caption on a screen and you see that scripture and you see what's happening and you, that's the Messiah. That's the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy right there. 
So many things fulfilled prophecy right before their eyes, and they didn't notice, but this time they noticed. If you remember, 18 years before this event, there was another incident when Jesus, who was just a boy at the time, was accidentally left behind at the temple by his parents. And this boy, who had astounded the teachers of the law, that 18 years earlier, that same little boy, has now returned to the temple, but not as a boy, as a man, and not just any man, the Son of Man, the ultimate man of God. A man whose heart is consumed for the glory of God. Not the same 12-year-old boy. And because of his complete confidence in God, he's incapable of being intimidated even by this entire crowd of men. He stands as one godly man against all these godless men. And in his passion reverence for God, he fearlessly confronts the extreme irreverence before him. You can imagine the upset and angry reactions of the merchants and the pompous Jewish leaders who had allowed these transactions in such a holy place. They had willfully ignored what we need to also remember today, that God alone retains the right to determine how He will be worshipped. In His holiness, He dictates how He's to be approached. He teaches us that how we as sinners can be purified for our sins before we approach Him in the Lord Jesus. He teaches us that His mercy alone can give free access to His presence. He retains the right to determine how we should be worshipped today, too. We don't make up our own rules about that. Do programs. Imitate other people's success. We look to the Scripture. Instead of saying, let's just look at what's popular in contemporary worship circles and let's just replicate that. Like some kind of Burger King franchise. You know, these new church growth methodologies, they're proven to be successful. Why don't we just duplicate it? We'll be successful too. It's not how we come to God as a group of believers. Instead of that popular nonsense, how about we submit to the revelation of God as it informs us of the holiness of God's person and how to approach and worship Him according to how He's prescribed in His Word. That doesn't sound too complicated, does it? but how rare it is that that's actually happening anymore. It's back in John 2. If you'll note what's absent in this text, you'll notice that the disciples don't jump in and join Jesus in cleansing the temple. Normally, they're right there. What can we do to help you, Lord? They don't join in. There's no mention of them lifting a finger to help him. Why? I suppose they're probably having trouble picking their jaws up off the floor like everybody else. They're just standing there stunned, watching the shocking scene unfold as this solitary, fearless man completely clears out the temple courts of the Gentiles. He did it all by himself, and they just watched it. Perhaps the disciples might have later remembered this event as a foretaste of another Old Testament prophecy from Malachi. It says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire. Jesus' actions were so aggressive and confrontational in this instance that we see a side of Him that challenges our very understanding of His perfections. Could our Lord be so aggressive and confrontational? The Lord that I know from the Scripture? It begs the question, why do we shy away so much from this side of Jesus' nature? Why not take that popular book, Gentle and Lowly, 
and write a sequel to it and call it aggressive and confrontational. Would it sell as many copies, you think? Could it be that our sense of justice falls far short of God's sense of justice? And that's why that sequel wouldn't appeal to us as much. Could it be that to sinners like us, the absolute purity of God's holiness is most foreign and unfamiliar to us? His nature is so different from ours. It's the thing that's hardest for us to relate to. We have no basis of comparison. Holiness? What's that? In Scripture, the only attribute of God that's ever mentioned in the triplicate is holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in Scripture do you see a statement like God is love, 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 or God is lowly, lowly, lowly. Only holy, holy, holy. The emphatic triplicate. It's the beauty of God's holiness that ignites and fuels the fire for Christ's zeal for God's majesty. That's what his heart beat for. The beauty of God's holiness. And so how do we emulate Christ in this instance? I mean, the zeal of Christ is a difficult characteristic to to know how to imitate and apply to ourselves, right? We might be quick to say, like most Christians, I I want the Lord Jesus to be my great exemplar. I, I want His humanity to inform my humanity. I want to love God the way He loves God. But along with loving the things that Jesus loves, are we also willing to hate the things that Jesus hated? I mean, it seems obvious we're to hate overtly evil things, but it's not obvious, not always so obvious how to hate the subtle, insidious compromise that creeps into our lives and creeps into our churches. Those more subtle evils, harder to identify for us. It requires a spirit-filled discernment to root out those compromises that rob God of His rightful glory. And we do that a lot as Christians, don't we? Rob God of His glory. God gives us gifts. We employ those gifts in trying to edify the saints, and then we take credit for it. But the scripture says, what do you have that you've not received? Yet, we want to take credit. We rob God of his glory. We're glory robbers. It's a great sin that we don't even often notice. So how do we apply the zeal of Christ in our own circumstances? I mean, it doesn't seem feasible to go from church to church and start purging and cleansing all these irreverent temples of our day. That would be quite an exhaustive mission. Maybe we think, well, I don't know if the circumstances of John 2 could ever really be duplicated one for one in my life. I'm not sure it has that one-on-one application to me. But God does put us in similar situations, doesn't he? Just on a smaller scale. And we're not in the temple in Jerusalem, but there's evil all around us. And we're called upon to be like Jesus right where we are right now. Like Jesus in all of Jesus' nature. He requires us to be obedient in all of our circumstances in the light of His holiness. Now, shouldn't we love others enough to refute the errors in doctrine and practice around us? Aren't we to confront irreverence even in our own church? Now, whether we're inside or outside the church, we're called to declare the truth about God in the face of all the lies around us. So if we're comparing Jesus' own actions and reactions to evil and sin to our own actions and reactions to sin... It essentially provides a barometer of our own spiritual condition, doesn't it? 
If only we possessed a righteous jealousy and a holy zeal for the justice of God, more like Christ did, we'd stand up to the lies around us and proclaim the truth more faithfully. Instead of shrinking back in compromise and biting our tongue and saying, well, maybe this is just one of those times I shouldn't say anything, we'd speak up more when we should if our hearts were aflame with zeal for God's glory. Should we continue to be silenced by our fear of man and fall under the temptation of people-pleasing cowardice? Why do we so often shut our mouth when we should be faithfully representing God's truth? And we need to be careful not to succumb to the temptation of cowardice. God equates cowardice with faithlessness, and he despises it. Jesus himself, after all, said that whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And I think that's one of the most sobering statements in all of Scripture. Let's depend on God for the discernment to read each situation and the boldness to speak and act accordingly. Every situation requires an appropriate response, and only God can equip us to respond rightly. So we don't just need wisdom from God, we need courage from God. Something that's sorely lacking in the modern church is courage. Both Christian men and Christian women need courage. This is not exclusive to the masculine gender, is it? Every believer needs to react to the evils that diminish God's glory with fearless zeal. Christian author Kent Hughes speaks about that this way. He says this, It's a pity that we've been so tamed by our godless culture. We've bought into the fallacy that thoughtful and intelligent people should reduce to mere discussion even the most outrageous matters without expressing negative emotion. Pretty much sums up the the tepid nature of of, of our day. He goes on to say, One of the greatest wickednesses of this age is that we have starved and chilled our faculty of indignation. Have we become numb to our need to exult in the beauty of God's holiness? That's our greatest need. God's glory is man's good. That's what we should hunger for. That's what we need the most. Have we become desensitized to the incremental influences of irreverence that have insidiously crept into the church? The subtle shifts toward man-centeredness? All these good things done in the name of God, but they're not the best thing. They're just good things. And so we use them to eclipse the greatest thing, which is God. If you replace the greatest things with just good things, what happens to the greatest things? Where have they gone? Where is our righteous indignation over the dishonor that's brought to God by the pervasive man-centered doctrines and practices infecting the church today? We think we're doing well here. Why? Because we're comparing ourselves to all the other fluffernutters out there. We ought to be comparing ourselves to the Bible. We should be crying out to God for church-wide repentance. We should be begging the Lord to heal the cold hearts of professing Christendom and shake us out of the deadening indifference to the things that seriously matter to Him. So let's first be faithful in praying that the Holy Spirit would root out the remaining corruption of irreverence in our own hearts. Because it's there. I mean, do you care about God's glory above all else? True reverence for God has to begin in our hearts as individuals. I mean, beginning in the Scripture and in our private prayer closets, 
before it can ever flow into our corporate worship and fellowship, into our teachings and our actions as a church. It has to begin in the hearts of individual Christians. Can you imagine a body of believers that are so committed to the glory of God that they've sold themselves out and they don't care about anything else? And then there's just a whole group of people like that on fire for the glory of God and they all gather in the same place. What kind of fellowship would happen there? You know, we can come in here and we can try to manufacture fellowship and we can try to synthesize this and synthesize that. But if it's not here first, who are we kidding? The prevailing complacency and apathy in the church today would begin to evaporate if our pursuit of God drew us into His presence in such a close communion that we truly tasted more of His holiness. If we experienced more of the sweetness of His mercies and perceived more of the grandeur of His eternal glory, we followed the priority of the prayer life of our Lord. The true reformation in the church has to begin with that kind of reformation in the hearts of each of us in the church. You say you want to be like Christ? Will you stand up against the man-centered religion and promote the renowned grandeur of God wherever you are? Even if it means risking the loss of personal relationships, are you willing to put that on the line? Will you stand up and proclaim the Lord as holy in your spheres of influence? I mean, if you really want to be more like Jesus, will you make it your primary aim to know God for who He truly is in the discipline of study? How can we obey the greatest commandment to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength if we haven't even exerted a reasonable effort to seek Him? God himself says, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. May God strengthen our faith so that his will would be done in the hearts of those who dwell on the earth, even as it is in the hearts of those who dwell in heaven. We know the hearts of all the redeemed saints who live with God now, the angels who love God. You know there isn't a speck of ill motive in their heart. They are motivated by love for God. And he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he wants our hearts to be here. And now, even before we arrive there, someone once said that going to heaven isn't so much a change of relationship, it's just a change of location. If you're walking with God here and you love him now, then it will be so natural for you to enter heaven in full love for him. May God strengthen our faith so that we would be zealous to treasure his sweetness above all else like our Savior. In closing, last week we were reminded from Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same today and yesterday and forever. And we also need to remember that this Alpha and Omega who was and is, is also coming again. He is indeed coming again, like we sang about. And when Jesus Christ, the righteous, the ascended Lord, again descends back down to the earth, He's not going to be returning in the humility of Bethlehem, is he? He's not returning merely as a mortal man, but he's returning as the immortal king and judge of all the earth. And he still possesses that same heart for God's glory today. He's bringing with him that same heart of zeal when he comes again. That same beating heart that compelled him to cleanse the temple in his perfect humanity will be infinitely multiplied in the power of omnipotent deity. 
And this time he's not going to purify just a localized temple. He's going to purify the entire planet. And all the earth will be devoured by the fire of his zeal. All the earth. He will put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he will put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap himself with zeal as a mantle. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry, and he will prevail against his enemies. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, The King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, behold, he is coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and every eye will see him when the sky splits apart like a scroll. As lightning flashes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. His coming will not be a localized event in Jerusalem. He will reclaim all of creation on a cosmic scale for the glory of God as his own possession. His righteous indignation will not be aimed at one small group of greedy religious charlatans. All the greedy, egomaniacal, self-serving, false ministers who have ever lived on the earth will be brought to shame by the purity of Christ's zeal for God's rightful glory. No one will escape his judgment. His offensive weapon won't just be a whip in the arm of a man. But out of his divine mouth comes a two-edged sword. His judgments will be poured out on all the inhabitants of the earth who fail to honor God or give him thanks. All those who in their prideful unbelief have failed to give glory to the God of heaven will give an account. And he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth by the word of his power. Comprehensively and exhaustively. He won't limit the fury of his zeal to merely overturning tables of merchandise. He will utterly vanquish all the economies and all the armies of fallen mankind in their entirety. All the kings of the earth will tremble at their destruction when they see their economic power evaporate before their eyes. And they watch the military might they trusted in disintegrate into dust. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? But take hope. For the redeemed, behold, his reward is with him. And all his disciples will again be beyond jaw-droppingly awed when Jesus Christ, the righteous king, establishes his rule and reign over all the earth, purifying it with the fire of his zeal to such an exhaustive extent that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the whole earth. And there will be no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. When Christ purifies and establishes His benevolent reign over the earth and rules it with a rod of iron, He will give all glory to God the Father. He will claim His rightful inheritance 
And what will he do with it? He'll share it with his purified bride. And so the meek shall inherit the earth, along with him who purified them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would help us to maintain a biblical vision of your Son so that when we read the parts of your Scripture, we remember the whole and we keep it in context. And we remember that this Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, is the King of the universe. Our judge is also our Savior. And we we marvel, Lord, that you would save such sinners as us, being who you are. We pray that as we live out our lives on the earth, we would take on the priorities of Christ, and that we would seek you in the diligence of study with all our heart to know the sweetness of your mercies, the beauty of your grandeur, the purity of your holiness, the majesty of your glory. I pray that you'd help us to know you more while we yet live. In Jesus' name.